Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here as usual with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Today, Father Stephen, um, let's talk about another church father. Uh, let's talk, he's got an interesting name. Um, let's talk about Tertullian. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of Gregory's, there's some Basil's, there's some John's, there's some repeated names in there, but I think we've got the only Tertullian here, right? Is that The right? only kid in his class, I'm sure, with that name. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very cool to have a unique name, I guess. But yeah, so um, this is a pretty, this is a, a, an earlier father, right? He's, uh, he's kind of so. on the early side. Uh, yeah, mid-second, he's born in the mid-second century. So he's really active at the end of the second century, beginning of the third century. Great. Well, a hundred years before Nicaea, think of it that way. Great. Well, maybe you could give us uh, just a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about, and then we can jump into his life. First of all, we can't really call him a father of the church because he actually died outside the church. Ah. Talk about that in his biography. So he's one of the most important Christian writers, but on the same token, and he has much tremendous orthodox work, but later on he went off the deep end. And so uh, that's why he doesn't have the title father of the church, even still a lot of the things are still read by the church. I see, I see. Um, But he's the first Christian Latin writer that we have. You know, we have Greek fathers and Latin fathers, but the original language of the faith was Greek. Even in Rome, services were in Greek into the third century. Right, right. People Greek really, was the language. That was the lingua franca. But he comes from North Africa, what we call an area we call a Tunisia now, uh, in there. It's called the Romans province of Africa. And uh, there they were primarily Latin. You know, they had some of that, but it wasn't, they never went to the Greek thing quite the, uh, quite the same way. Although he has excellent Greek. So he's our first Latin writer, and that's really important. Uh, he's eminently quotable. I see. I mean, we'll talk at the end of some of his quotes. But, I mean, honestly, this guy is every other sentence. He, there's always something he can quote. He's very, very quotable. He had a great influence on Latin theological vocabulary. Again, he really knew Greek well. Unlike Augustine, where it's really problematic how much Greek he knew. Uh, you know, Tertullian knew Greek fluently. And so when he had to say, look, he's bringing this information to people who don't know Greek. It's a lot of people in North Africa and things bringing into Latin. Mm-hmm. How do I say this in Latin? Yeah. He's the one who came up with the word per- person for hypostasis. Remember in Greek? Okay, yeah. Persona. So what we name the members of the Trinity. Right? And persona meant it in, in Roman law. He actually had a legal background. For example, part of his, like Calvin uh, in that way. And that was someone who had standing at a trial was a persona. You know, so you put it, you know, basically. <laughs> like a legal person. Yeah. yeah, like a legal person. So he, he invented that term, but there are many other terms. I mean, he was really... Dealing with Greek texts with unique Christian thought, he had to come up, what's the best way to say that in Latin? Mm-hmm. And it's it's cool to have people who who are involved in translating meaning from one to another, because that's when you really start to get down to what do we actually mean when we say this, right? Yeah, and he knew the languages so well that he'd say, hey, this is like a false friend. Uh-huh. I could say this, but a Roman's going to get the wrong idea. But it doesn't really mean that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't yeah, mean that yeah. to us. Okay, so he's a great uh, interpreter and translator across across languages. And he had a lasting influence on the Western Church because his writing reads so well. It's very accessible. It's mm-hmm. very you know, quotable. Uh, matter of fact, Cyprian of Carthage, we've talked about him in an episode. 
loved Tertullian. He called him simply the teacher, the master. And it said whenever he got really tired from his work, he'd say, hey, can you bring me a copy of the master? And he'd do that. He would read that to relax. So this is an encouragement, guys uh, and girls, to be good writers, right? I mean, I've often wondered actually whether our, you know, evangelical... obsession with C.S. Lewis, for instance, has to do with how good of a writer C.S. Lewis is. He's such a fluid, fluid guy to read, right? Well, this guy's really good. Uh-huh. I mean, Tertullian really writes Latin well, and it's it's very, uh, very accessible. He really gets to the point. One of the things that can frustrate you at times if you're new to patristic literature, or some of the Greek literature and things, you wish I would get you wish you get to the point. Yeah. But it's <laughs> the natural 21st century view sometimes. Uh-huh. Tertullian gets to the point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's a lawyer charging, well, I shouldn't say that charging with our, you know, it'd be longer. But actually, he really gets, he focuses very well. Um, and again, he is an unmatched, one of the things we love about Tertullian, or historians love about him, is he's an unmatched witness. Remember we said Ignatius was so important because it told us so much about the church in his time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's writing to bishops, so we know that there's bishops, there's all these things, yeah. And we, he's just an unmatched witness for what was the church like and what was the society like in which the church moved. So he's kind of a win- an archaeological window yeah. into what life he's was like. He's one of those amazing people uh, who's, a, you know, his writings are one of the keys of how we know a lot about uh-huh. what things were like in the church and in the ambient society at his time. So a lot of different dif- disciplines are going to have eyes on his yeah. writing. Okay. Uh, people yeah. never lose interest in Tertullian. Great, great. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about his life. What do we know about his life? Well, we don't know much because, you know, some people, it's like in sermons, some people tell you their life story mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in personal anecdotes and things. That is not Tertullian. Okay, so not his style. <laughs> he doesn't talk about himself and other people don't talk about him. Uh-huh. So normally you have like people who don't like you and things or rivals and things. Well, think of if you knew Jerome, you know everything about people. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, so, so he's a little bit like Shakespeare, maybe? Like, yeah, you know? he's, uh, he's a very important for his writings, but we don't. Matter of fact, it's very possible that he only left Carthage once. Uh-huh. Uh, you, we had a, a first day in Rome. Uh, but he was born in Carthage. Again, that's where modern Tunisia, uh, in uh, 155. He came from a pagan family. His father was a successful army officer. So he came from a pagan family, he had an excellent education. Mm. In law, in philosophy, and medicine. Specifically in philosophy, he really knew his stuff when it came to Stoics. Oh, okay, yeah. Very Roman thing. The Romans really loved the Stoics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was so Roman. And that was kind of a... that Stoicism was kind of um, getting a second look, right, at, at this time? Like it was getting kind of popular? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, this is... It's coming into its own. So uh, he has this excellent... And medicine. He knew some medicine, too. He's trained in medicine. He converts, this is interesting, in 193, he converts to Christianity as the result of seeing martyrs. Mm. He said, this has got to be God at work. There's, so, there's something bigger than these people at work. It's authentic, I need to know. He's the one who, his most famous quote, perhaps, he has many famous quotes, is that the, uh, the blood of the martyr, uh, the, the blood of the martyrs are the seed of Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, the martyrs actually sort of plant new Christians, because that was his personal experience. Oh, I didn't know that. Being connected with martyrdom, he was so impressed. This can't be faked. Yeah. I, this is a divine power. How can these people do this? Yeah. And that was very impressive to him. Never lose the, that, that sense. In his adult life, he goes through periods. From 193 to 206 there, you know, we have, uh, he's within the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, extraordinarily productive period. Then he starts getting involved with Montanism. Uh, you know, and he has like a two-step period. First of all, he has like a five-year period where he's involved with Montanism, but he's still very much in the church. Then he actually leaves the church. So what's Montanism? 
Okay, well, it was named after a man named Montanus, uh-huh. who lived in what we would think of southeast um, Frisia, in southeast Turkey today, today's Turkey, uh-huh. Anatolia. Uh, he lived there, and he claimed he thought of himself as a prophet, and he was associated with two women, Prisca and Maximilla, uh, you know, become prophetesses. And so one of the things he has is charismatic gifts. Some of the things he describes sounds like being slayed in the spirit, thing, this kind of thing, which uh, was not popular in some quarters. They, but he, um, one of the things, they were extraordinarily strict. They kept tightening the belt on things, like encouraging sometimes even married couples to maybe it should separate, no longer be intimate within marriage, or uh-huh, discouraging uh-huh. marriage, we call encroachism, uh, people who thought it's sort of a Gnostic tendency yeah. to really, um, to move, you know, against the flesh. I see. Uh, actually, there's no doctrinal unorthodox, unorthodoxy with them. Mm-hmm. The one string that was strange was he was persuaded in their prophecies that the new Jerusalem was going to descend in a village in Frisia. Mm, okay. Soon. And he encouraged all Christians to come there and wait. Well, this sounds very similar to some Anabaptists kind of groups yeah. or something that very yeah. much that's a really good comparison mm-hmm. some of the Anabaptist groups of the Reformation sure 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 interesting so this is this a separate sect from the church yes. are they, so they're not under any bishop or anything as no they become they become their own separate church indeed the church survives into the time of Augustine we still have Montanus survive Montanus okay so maybe is this similar they end up in a similar place as maybe the Donatists like they're a separate order that's yeah. not connected to the their the belief was the real church was the spirituals i see talk okay. about that you know they they were the real church not that hierarchy stuff not those yeah. people with the laying yeah. out of hands these ones who had the special gift of the holy spirit were the real thing sure 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 and so that's what really caused them to split off and do their own thing yeah wow boy that does sound familiar yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> okay got it got it so tertullian ends up getting involved with with this montanism at first from within the church because again it was uh, doctrinally orthodox and things but later on it's one of those church of the pure you know uh-huh. others just aren't keeping aren't really doing it right okay so he actually leaves the church in 213 and the rest of his life from 214 to about 240 we're not quite sure but Ro- jerome said he lived to be an old age so based on various things i won't get into this uh we think it's probably about 240 but he was actually a leader of a subgroup. What a surprise that in a group like this, we break into subgroups. Even, yeah, even more splintering. <laughs> but he was a head of a splinter group within the Montanist movement. And that's all we know of him. Okay. Is, uh, that, that is his biography. Okay, I see, I see. So um, so he, well, so in, in, that's interesting though, where he ends up maybe seems, maybe even influenced by how he got in, right? Yes. Like, I mean, he's... He's impressed by this yeah. spiritual vitality of martyrs, right. and so it would make sense that he'd be like, you know, this is really core to to the the expression of the faith. So I guess and what he saw is the active working of the Holy Spirit in these gifts and things as being sure. a sign. This should be everywhere. Which yeah, he very much was attracted to that notion. And again, the idea of a purified church, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, church of the spiritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I see. Great. Well, so so he's he leaves us some writing, obviously, or we wouldn't be talking about him. Uh, yeah, he leaves a good a good deal of uh, writing. Yeah. But maybe maybe you can talk about what what who is he writing to, um, and what are what what's, what are his concerns in writing? So he's an educated person, but but why is he writing and what's he writing? Well, the first things he writes is apologetics, meaning mm-hmm. to explain to people around them. Excuse me, they say all these bad things about us. Here are the facts about Christians. Okay. And one thing he wrote is, uh, this is really neat. It's rare we have this in history. He wrote something called To the Nations, 
okay. And then later on, it's called the Apologeticum. He basically, it's great to see an author who comes back to his original work and expands it. The same author. Okay, yeah. So like we have a, two versions of the of, work. Kind of a director's cut. Sort yeah, of we have yeah. the initial version and then his more considered version. Both of these are during his orthodoxy. Uh-huh. Most of his writing is during his orthodox period. Yeah. That's why we, we uh, it's had such an influence. It, it didn't move away. Yeah. Uh, and he says, for example, his to Romans, look, Christians, everyone knows that Christians live a virtue. For all this talk of things, everyone looks in the marketplace and thinks that Christians are virtuous people. And he says, actually, they're more virtuous than others, he argued, because for a lot of Romans and things, the question was, uh, you know, for example, at night, if you're going along and um, it's the middle of the night, you're in a country road, no one's for miles, you can see miles around and there's a stop sign. Do you just do a rolling stop through or something, <laughs> saying I can see a mile each direction or not? Uh-huh. And he says, Christians, we, it doesn't matter on the chance of getting caught. Yeah. That we, as a matter of conscience, we have internalized the moral code. Hmm. That was impressive, Dora. That was normally not the case. You know, a lot of it was enforcement. Right. But he says Christians actually consider the laws as binding by God. He says so we're actually better. And he said the only crimes we really have are thought crimes. And he, you remember like in the New Testament, we have ins- instances where people bring, like with Paul, and they're saying, you know, what has he done? And they talk, well, he said, we're the crimes. And the Romans didn't look upon thought crimes as being crimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're like, why are you bringing me why, this guy? I thought he did something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why are you bringing? Uh-huh. And so he said, actually, when it comes down to it, you know, the real problem, he says, as a lawyer, he says, why are we getting people, instead of dealing with the results of the crime, you know, if there's a crime, let's talk about the crime, but why is the thought being confused mm-hmm, with the supposed mm-hmm, crime? Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I love this. He said, Christians are accused of immorality. The classic thing he said was, you know, that... Uh, we've talked about with the Eucharist and the like, is they meet together early in the first day of the week and they eat they eat babies. Oh, know? right, yeah. That's where the Eucharist thing, and they also, because of the kiss of peace and things, they're engaged, it's an orgy. Okay. <laughs> so there's kind of a little game of telephone going but on As a here. lawyer, he has a beautiful response to this. He says, you know, he's an attorney. I mean, he, he has a, a professional law background. He says, excuse me, we've had a lot of raids on Christian worship. Now, you would think if we've never found like the remains of a baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'd think we'd see this. We've never found the remains of a baby. We've never seen people naked having an orgy. Uh-huh. And you wouldn't have to look far in Rome to find those things. Okay. <laughs> so we never found any of the things. Don't you think if this is what was routinely happening, that in all these raids, there's never, no one's ever claimed they've ever found anything. Yeah. And also he said another thing. You know, if, if people are good Roman boys and things are converting, wouldn't you think the first time they came in and said, Wow, you're eating a baby. They would, somebody would go out and say, hey, this is crazy. Right, right, he right. He said <laughs> none of the, quote, new Christians who've later on, none of them have said anything that's happened. Okay, so you have no no shocked consciences of people running back to their pagan families so going, oh, no, it, I didn't know. But This yeah, is like something yeah. out of the old Perry Masons or something. He said, let's look at the, the legal credibility of this. Sure, sure, sure. He said, you know, how come in all these raids we never see any of this? If this is just all omnipresent, you'd think we'd have all the results. We'd have baby bones and things. We don't have anything. Yeah, no, that's pretty pretty sensible. <laughs> yeah, and he said nobody's ever come back and said differently. Yeah. No one yeah. has come and said, I never thought this is true, all these horrible things. Another one we had a guy named Scapula. He was actually the proconsul of, um, of that area, uh, basically like a Roman governor mm-hmm. in that area. And he says to him, look, uh, he said, actually, Christians are better citizens than Romans because, you know, Romans often emperors got gotten killed and things, you know, in debates. We think the emperor is actually appointed by God. Mm. So there's no stronger thing. We don't just think he's the toughest guy on the top of the hill. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is actually God wanted this guy here for something. So Yeah, and he said, you talk about putting Romans in danger from the gods. The only one in danger is you for judging innocent people wrongly. Mm-hmm. This is during a persecution. Yeah. Then he wrote a thing to the martyrs, which I like where he actually, uh, he tells them, you know, that actually their martyrdom, it's like Ignatius, is a blessing. What an honor that you get to be called. You know, the God's going to use you as the witness. Again, he had seen that as youth, uh, that you call you as the witness. Also being, as he starts moving more and more this direction toward the mountainous, he's saying, you know, the question was, is it, is it right to flee persecution? Yeah. And of course, the, the right answer of the church is yes. Mm-hmm. We, we should go out of harm's way. We shouldn't needlessly. But his view, no. If there's a persecution, God must have willed it, and so you're basically standing against the will of God. Mm. Luther wrote on this, didn't he? Didn't so many people have. Um, <laughs> I, I remember one saint, a modern saint, I won't, uh, you know, who agonized about whether he should take uh, aspirin for a headache. If God <laughs> wanted me to have the headache, you know, uh-huh. it's right. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, but he thought it was wrong, and he thought buying your way out of persecution was wrong. His basic view is you had the opportunity, anything but taking it. And then the crown... Uh, has some wonderful quotes about the sign of the cross, but the crown is talking, he thought the soldier's oath and the baptismal oath are incompatible. Mm, so you can't be a soldier. Yeah. Well, this is really debatable. Okay. There's a real debate on this. Huh. Pacifist is trying to say, see, he's a pacifist. But his problem had to do with the oaths and things because later on he said, you find Christians everywhere. He said, I mean, you find them in army camps. He gives a whole list of you. Find, you know. I see, I see. And so that doesn't seem compatible. So there's a real debate in the literature about whether he's really anti-military Okay, or not. I see, I see. So what did he mean? Did he mean that you can't be a soldier and a Christian, or did he mean that this entrance... Was, I think he was talking yeah. more of the things, because soldiers being government and the government rituals, this are like the Pledge of Allegiance type sure, of thing, sure. is is everywhere. And he said, you know, given the oath, the, then the older soldier has to take a solemn oath by the gods yeah. to become a soldier. Uh-huh. Like to be in the U.S. Army, you have to take an oath to defend the Constitution. Right. And he's saying he just thought that was incompatible, but people have wanted to run to make him a pacifist, but I don't think the evidence supports it from other things he says. It, it also wouldn't really make sense with his support of the emperor, right? Because mm-hmm. if the emperor is wielding the power of the sword, then yeah, it would be weird to kind of have a separate approval of that without getting involved, yeah. But I'm very impressed again by the, the critics who say, well, wait a second, he specifically mentions not in a, and believe me, he doesn't hesitate to be negative about things he thinks are wrong. Sure. But, um, you know, for the Christians, like this wouldn't be right, but he, when he talks about, we find Christians everywhere and just mentions this in a neutral way. Uh-huh. We find them in army camps, we find them here, you know, doesn't seem to be compatible with the idea that he was somehow the first pacifist. Yeah. Then we have anti-heretical works, a whole bunch of them. Uh, we had uh, against Marcion. This is neat. Marcion uh, was one uh, who believed in dualism. Remember, one of the great world religions at the time was Zoroastrianism. Yeah. The yeah. ancient religion of Persia. Mm-hmm. And they had a, a god of good and a god like of evil. A light evil. god and a dark god. Right. right. Ahura Mazda was the god of good and Araman was the god of evil. And so what, what he was into was this idea of, well, you know, how can you take that Old Testament god? Because he makes matter. Remember, that's bad if you make matter. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> he creates all the bad stuff as opposed to the father of Jesus, this pure spiritual being. So he makes really two different gods. Sure, sure. Yeah. So these are not the same people. And then he also argues, uh, so he argues against the validity of the Old Testament. He also argues against virtually all the New Testament. He takes all of Luke's gospel except for the infancy narratives. And he takes selected versions. He put his own book together, his favorite quotes from Paul called the Apostolicon. <laughs> okay. 
Yes. <laughs> so pretty, uh, pretty, pretty tight standard. Eclectic. For yeah. <laughs> so some some scripture meets his standard, I guess. He's very gnostic. <laughs> yeah. But most of what we know about Marcion comes from from this. We knew about him, other than he exists, but most of what we know about the actual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we have Hermogenes, uh, somebody who believed like the Stoics did, and the matter's always been around; it wasn't created. Valentin, the Valentinians were, not, were another form of Gnostic. Uh, against the Jews, arguing that the prophecies of the Old Testament clearly prove, you know, now that we know with Jesus, we could see that those, there's no reason not to accept this. Mm-hmm. I love the prescription of heretics. Prescription has a, stra- has a strange meaning. In Latin, what it means, pre- uh, prescriptio in Latin, means when you first come to a case, the court can say, hey, you have no standing. You have no right to sue. Uh-huh. You have no standing before this court, you know, yeah, before yeah. the court case even begins. Yeah, that's what we talk about. It's writing before we even begin. So it's a prescript. Yeah. yeah. It's, okay. And so th- this is saying, he said, heretics have no basis at all to, to, to argue with Christians because the Christians have the, have the apostles, have the, have the scriptures, etc. They have no standing. Okay. We are the descendants of the apostles. We have the books the apostles wrote. Etc. We have the scriptures and things. You have no standing. So it's, he cuts the legitimacy out of the out of the factions. Okay. You remember a lot of Gnostics claim that they had Jesus's secret teachings. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> we have the public ones in the Gospels, but he had the really in, the the his yeah. We have teachings. the good stuff. We have the good stuff. <laughs> hey man, you want you want some of the good stuff? And then yeah, then he had the catechumenated ministry of heretics, and there he just says, "Look, have you ever noticed these heretics? They don't keep very good order." Uh, in their churches. And also he said, you know, that there's really not much doctrinal order. You know, once people start questioning these things, you yeah, know, he's, yeah. that's, he's, he's saying some of these. Okay. So he's just as involved in, uh, repudiating and tussling with heretics as, as the other earlier fathers. As well, well, this is earlier on uh-huh. because we're still in his, his, uh, orthodox phase. Okay. Although he would consider other people to be heretics. Sure. Other works on spectacles, you know, on the on the Roman shows, he said you shouldn't go to athletic games or to ga- gladiator fights and things because mm-hmm. they're because of the immorality. And you mm-hmm. might think, well, what's the immorality in sports games? Well, they actually killed each other, right? Like, wh- didn't people actually die that, in the gladiator games? Yeah, but I'm talking athletic games. Oh, okay. There's a lot of Greek games are in the nude. Oh, I see. And that he just thought that was you know interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. By yeah. the way, that's what starts out the um, the Maccabean uh, you know revolt. Uh, comes from building a stadium in Jerusalem. Where that would go on. Yeah, and they thought uh, you having naked guys running around in the holy city was just uh, that Jews were not into nudity. So modesty. Yeah, dude. modesty. Yeah. And you'd have women watching this and things, and they just said this was just immoral and modest. Huh, interesting. Okay, yeah. okay. I think we're, uh, I'm, I'm always, for some reason, have this background assumption that these in the in the ancient world or at other times, there's just completely relative standards for these things. But modesty is a real concern. Like, well, it was for Jews and things. Jews stood out from the rest of the world this way in a okay. number of ways. Yeah, one, like in the Maccabean things, it, it was very Hellenistic. That was considered perfectly normal. Look at Greek sculpture and things. Sure, sure, sure. But to Jews, wait, why are you running around naked? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, put on clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, baptism, which is. Uh, by the way, the famous quote, you can't have God for your father at the church for your mother, we mostly associate with Cyprian of Carthage, mm-hmm. a beloved church doctor. But he actually, remember I told you how much he loved Tertullian? Yeah, so he quoted Tertullian here. He was quoting Tertullian. So you can't, you can't have God from, for your father and not have the church for your mother. That's yeah. right. Oh, that's good. Now, sometimes Anabaptists like to quote him on the fact that he opposed uh, infant baptism. But actually, what he was opposing, we have to get this straight, is he's saying people should wait till after they're married to get baptized. So what, that doesn't have to do with, you know, 
what it probably has to do with is once he's he's now getting really you know as he gets later on in his career towards the mountainous his question is can it is it really possible to have sins from going to see forgiven after baptism right and that i mean that was beyond just him right the church really had to struggle with this one didn't it right so the question would be until you have some sort of lawful sexual outlet I see. It was probably unwise. Okay. I, I think see. it's more yeah. that than saying you're just not old enough to understand what you're doing. Okay. So I think we might be reading more into it then, because again, why would he mention marriage as sort of the ideal uh, mm-hmm. place to after they're married? Sure. On penance, on the need for public penance. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, he does to his wife. This is I love this. He writes to his wife. Uh, he says um, says don't remarry. Okay, but if you okay. do, don't marry a pagan. And <laughs> wait, it, why is he writing to his wife giving her remarriage advice? Were they wait? Were they having trouble? <laughs> what was going no, on? No, so I think of a possible death or something. Oh, you know, okay. If I, get if killed, I die, okay. If I, I die see, I see. in the ancient world, that was always a step away. I, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So you know, saying if I die, I just want you to know that I think the best thing for you is not to remarry. But whatever you do, don't remarry. And the reasons why are interesting. Why can't you marry a pagan? He says. First of all, there's a real risky, uh, again, given the role of men versus women in that society, that he won't let you practice your faith. Mm, he won't yeah. let you go to church and yeah. these kind of things, and you, he could actually just stop you. Another would be he would discover things, if he remains a pagan, about the church that traditionally are supposed to be secret. When he sees how you live in your prayers and things, he would be mm-hmm. able to tell people, hey. And they thought that was, uh, was not appropriate. And also, if you try to hide those things, he'll think you must be doing something illicit. Okay. Especially mentions church, Christians often met really early in the morning for vigils uh-huh. and things like this. And if you're running out of the house in the middle of the night, he might think other things. He seems, he seems very attuned to human, just the human behavior, you know. Did or, I mention he's a Roman? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, explain what that means. What do you mean, what do you mean by that? These were very, very earthly, pragmatic people. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of folk wisdom here. A lot of folk wisdom. I like that. But there's a beautiful tribute. I have, uh, let me read just a few lines here uh, from t- talking to his wife about the beauty of being in Christian marriage. He says, how beautiful then the marriage of two Christians, two who are one in hope, one in desire, one in the way of the life they follow, one in the religion they practice. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or in spirit. They are in very truth, two in one flesh. And where there is but one flesh, there's also but one spirit. They pray together, they worship together, they fast together, instructing one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Side by side, they visit God's church and partake at God's banquet. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecution, share their consolations. Where there are two together, there also he is present, and where he is, there evil is not. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. Uh, given the times, that's really a remarkable statement about your wife. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> She's, he's describing her like a friend. Yeah. Like, it's this is a real friendship here. Yeah. I, then he goes, well, he said, initially he said, well, don't remarry. Uh, but if you do, don't marry a pagan. Now, as we really cross the line into, into the mountains, now we have something called an exhortation to chastity. He says, don't remarry at all. Mm-hmm. For two reasons. He said, the first reason is, you know, if God's trying to tell you something, if your first husband dies, <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically this is, you're, okay, you're fighting against you're, providence. He's, you're done. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is he said, look, the priests in the Old Testament weren't allowed to remarry if their spouse died. And he said, well, aren't all Christians priests? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Okay. That's interesting. That sounds a little pharisaical, right? A, a, a applying priestly codes to to the lady. Well, that was the uh, sure. Yeah. Well, actually, this be, yeah, that's, uh, that's similar. Very idea. similar, right? Yeah. Because Pharisees writes that all of God's people are priests, and that's where you get the hand washing in the Old Testament. Uh huh. Uh huh. Also, virgins should be veiled. Uh, that's a, one of his treatises, and this is not what you uh, uh, what you think. He goes beyond just uh, uh, basically. Uh, here's what happened in the. In, in that part of the world, the people were, who were veiled, it's sort of like a wedding ring. Wedding ring on a woman, that originally was just women, was to tell you, this, she's taken, don't start, sure. don't start hitting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, she's not looking for someone, you know, right, the idea. Right, right. Okay. Well, in their part of the world, the people who wore veils were married women. Oh, okay. Like Jewish uh, married women who are Hasidic, for example, wear wigs. So it's like it's closed, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. basically saying, yeah, you know, I'm married now. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm not out on the market okay. as such. But that wasn't true of either women who were, were widowed or of women who weren't yet married. And he's saying, well, I think uh, it should be extended to everybody. Oh, so you really should... Yeah, women just generally. Not men, of course. But. So women should just not should just not project that they're available at all. Like, yeah, uh, well, he was suggesting it would be more modest. But, uh, there is no historical evidence whatsoever that anyone anywhere ever followed this advice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is delusional. Yeah, okay. yeah, I imagine. On idolatry, this is really interesting for us, I think, in the 21st century. He says, first of all, a Christian cannot practice any profession that's even incidentally connected. So he said, for example, people who prepare the jewels that are specifically made for putting into idols and things, you mm -hmm. can't do that because it's related. But he had two other things. He said, what about pagan literature? And he said, how in the world can we argue uh, for, the, uh, for the faith without knowing these things? Plus, it's our, our... And he said, Christians can study pagan literature. They can't teach it. Oh, I see. Okay. So you can't propagate or recommend right. this stuff, but right. you, you can understand it. Yeah, yeah. To, to learn about it, sure, but you can't propagate it. And the other thing he says is, um, what do you do about life passage events? Sort of the question a lot of people have with, let's say, attending someone you know who a gay wedding or something. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And his view was you can participate as a specter in a pagan life passage event. Life passage, what's that? Uh, for example, rites of passage. Oh, for I example, see. every okay. Roman young man when he became an adult had took on the toga. So there's these kind of semi-religious rites yeah. of passage. That, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you become a man. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a Roman version of a bar mitzvah where you get your toga. Okay. And so there was obviously a pagan prayer and thing. He said, this is just a life passage event. Uh -huh. So he said he thought it was fine to be simply a spectator as long as you didn't do anything sure. in a life passage sure, sure. event. Um, against Praxius, uh, now he's, well. this is interesting. This is phenomenal. This is over. This is in 213. This is over 100 years before Nicaea. Yeah, he gives yeah. wonderful teachings on the person of Christ and the Trinity. Wow. Uh, he anticipates, for example, Augustine's famous analogy, you know, with intellect, memory, and will. Oh, so that's like the Trinity. Yeah, um, as an analogy for the Trinity. He affirms the fact that Christ has a human soul. He's truly human and truly divine in every sense. Yeah, yeah. He has yeah. a human soul. They don't just, it's doesn't the divine soul sort of shares the human body, God and a bod. Wow, and this is like a hundred years before that stuff before gets nice. clarified. Even, yeah. Even the two natures of Christ. You know, each one is complete and active. Huh. This is like, you know, pre-Chalcedon. Wow, wow, wow. So, I mean, it's really, it's an amazing piece. So it's against Praxius, uh, but it really has great uh, description of, of Trinitarian theology and the person of Christ. And I imagine the people that, came later are going to work off of this, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to, yeah. okay, so they're going to take these and run with them. Yeah, like I said, he comes up with our word for 
uh, what do you call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We call them in Latin persons. Persona. He's the one who came to that word in Greek there, hypostasis. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then we have on monogamy. He's coming back yet to the thing about no second marriage. Okay. Like, really? Now he'd been criticized. So now don't do it, guys. And so he's saying, <laughs> don't. But he's saying, I can't actually say this is from God. He can't, I can't say it's a sin. However, <laughs> he said, look, the Holy Spirit now through these prophets is telling us this is the best way. It's trying to restore the best. And so he said, isn't, think of it this way. Isn't it sort of adultery? Because we believe your dead spouse is with the Lord alive. Yeah, yeah. So you really are having, your, your, your spouse is still alive with the Lord. So isn't it sort of like a spiritual form of adultery? I haven't thought about that before. That's funny that he wrote about that. But yeah, that, that, that is funny. That well, he's certainly obsessed with his wife not getting remarried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really wants to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, wonder uh, if he, I wonder if he was worried people would find out things about him or something. <laughs> oh, I just think he really loved her. Sure. Then we have on prayer which is great. He has a commentary in the Our Father, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, standard with the Church Fathers. We have so many beautiful commentaries in the Our Father. Gives advice on prayer. He's the one who tells us, if you wonder, like, um, he says you don't kneel during the Easter season, you know, all the way through. Um, but you kneel it because that's a time, it's not a, a time of, of penitence, mm-hmm. you know, but otherwise you kneel. And he talks about when do Christians pray? And he said, of course, morning and the evening. But he said, during the day, we had those three times, mid-morning, noon, and mid-afternoon. Yeah. Those times. He said, also, before you, t- before you uh, eat or take a bath. Uh-huh. And also, before enter- when entering or leaving a house. He said, those <laughs> okay. were customs at the time, as Christmas Christians did. Oh, that's really interesting. Then he wrote something on women's dress, um, giving advice. So uh, we're back to modesty then. That, well, actually, it's more extravagance than modesty. Okay. He's saying some of these things. It's interesting. He's saying, first of all, it's incompatible with people really going elaborately. But also he's talking, some of the stuff is really, really elaborate. Precious jewels and gold and silver. And he's saying, for a Christian woman, he said, uh, sort of a social justice issue. We have people who are starving on the streets. Can you as a Christian justify, you know, this kind of thing? So he argued basically on a social justice as well, that there's a certain point, even if you can afford it, that just shock the conscience. Yeah. yeah. So he does it both ways. First of all, it's not humble at a certain point. He doesn't have a trouble against dressing decently and things or even make make sense when it really gets into the stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's, um, you you need to put a limit on this because it's almost limitless in the Roman world how women would pay for to dress up. Sure, sure. Yeah. Not that things have changed. In I was so about to say, yeah, <laughs> not not to pick on women because I'm sure we could we could find all sorts of extravagances that people are willing to shell out for. But yeah, yeah, I can definitely see how that would apply today. And then when he was a Montanist, he has three Montanist works. One's called "On Modesty." What a surprise! And <laughs> um, but actually, here uh, he distinguishes what's important here between forgivable and unforgivable sins. Hmm. And the unforgivable sins uh, to him are idolatry. Remember, we've talked about this, idolatry yeah. uh, or apostasy, you know, basically being unfaithful to God. Yeah. Uh, adultery, okay, and murder. Huh, okay. So you can't, so you can't those, be forgiven for those things. Well, here's the point. He said, what about the power of the keys? And he said, well, remember this, he's a Montanist now. He's saying, well, the power of keys was given to the apostles. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't go automatically through a church hierarchy or something. It's the spiritual people who have that gift. Of binding and loosing, yes. basically. So it's not the people who are in charge, it's these spiritual people. And they would never use it because they wouldn't want to encourage sin. I see. Okay. That's really the argument. Okay, okay. I cannot make that up. So that's the argument. So we've got we've gone full Montanist at this point. Full yeah. Montanist. Okay, got it. Then he has something called on the soul, 
which uh, he argued that that a father transmitted the soul at the same time he transmitted the body. Oh, you mean like during conception? Yes. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. So because it was it was pretty, it was wasn't wasn't the what was Aristotle's idea that you the woman provides the matter and the man provides the spirit or something like that? I, well, the, he, uh, as I recall with Tertullian, it's more in his case more of the idea that um, it's a more refined, highly refined, ethereal matter, but it's still matter. Okay, okay. And that both are basically a product of the act of conception. Interesting. All yeah. right, so really, 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 really got some niche interests here. Yes. Then, yeah, and then on fasting, because the mountainous, you could never do enough. Okay. They even argued at one point that why do you bring nice last meals to Christians who are about to be martyred? They should be fasting. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they get special treatment? Well, let's like, <laughs> but let's focus on uh, on sure his his writings, his pre-Montanist writings are really are really good. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. really worth. I highly recommend them to you. And to give you an idea of typical, let me give you some of the quotes he's famous for. Mm-hmm. This guy is so quotable. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's definitely one I've heard. Yeah, yeah. that's his, probably his most famous quote. See how those Christians love one another. Mm-hmm. That's actually a quote from Tertullian. Mm-hmm. See how those Christians love one another. Mm-hmm. I love this one. Hope is patience with the lamplet. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Like Can we give patience? Yeah. But we know what we're waiting for. You know, hope is patience with the lamplet. Uh-huh. You can't parcel out freedom in pieces because freedom is all or nothing. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That sounds. Sounds a little, that sounds pretty patriotic. <laughs> I like that. But I would think for our freedom from sin and things. You know, the type of, course, of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can judge the quality of their faith by the way they behave. Discipline is an index to doctrine. It's like Jesus saying, by their fruits you will know them. Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Hmm. Against simony and things. Sure, buying spiritual office. And... This is a cruel saying, but it is fun. He who lives only to benefit himself confers on the world a benefit when he dies. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good turn of phrase there. Here's probably a second most famous quote. Uh-huh. It is certain because it's impossible. I have heard about that. So what exactly does he mean by it's certain because it's impossible? Well, I think what he's saying is it's something the police would tell you when they... Um, one of the things that characterizes truth, there's always an unexpected element to it. Hmm. That's the very nature of it. It's sort of like with statistics. Uh, as you know, that it's true that, uh, you know, evens and odds are like, you know, um, you know, it's going to be back and forth. You flip a coin. Yeah. But that's over time. But at any given time, you could have 7, 10, 20 in a row that are just heads or tails. Sure, yeah. It's only over time. And so one of the things when a story seems too neat, you know, sometimes that's yeah. a sign that it's been invented. Okay, okay. And so the idea, I think, is that Christianity, the very, you know, the very unique features of it are things that could not have been invented. Right, right. Who would want to invent something that seems so, uh, so, so unusual? Yeah, there's much of that. I mean, for example, we the, choosing women as witnesses, these kind of things, all yeah, sorts yeah, of things. Okay, okay. So that's what that's what that means. It's just certain because it is impossible. I love talking about abortion, which is widespread in the ancient world. Prevention of birth is a precipitation of murder. Mm, 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 yeah, yeah. That's a, I, that's that. So he he talks about this as well because there they I, all do it in the Didache. It's everywhere. Yeah, I was about to say there's that verse in the Didache that that talks about it. There was no question from the very beginning that uh, that abortion was murder. Mm, mm. Christians are made, not born. 
<laughs> that's a there's a that's that's so funny we you that for some reason that's been adapted now into heroes are made not born you hear that mm-hmm. a lot i can't remember exactly where i've heard that but i've i've heard that nature soaks every evil with either fear or shame what he's saying is one of the ways we know that we're doing wrong is either we're ashamed or is fright afraid yeah yeah he said a good sign when you're afraid or ashamed there probably is an element of sin but that can be a good indicator Interesting. It's like in law, it's a matter of law, for example, the concealment is evidence of, uh, of, of guilt. Uh-huh. For example, if you walk out of the store with something in your hand, you could honestly say, oh, you just forgot, it could happen to somebody. You're walking out of the store and you forgot you have yeah. something in your hand you had paid for. But when you put something under your coat, yeah, yeah. Concealment demonstrate is considered in law to be a demonstration of an attempt to deceive. I see, I see. You know, the very knowledge that this is something I can't let people see. Okay. That's what made me shame. Something yeah. I can't let people see, or I'm afraid. Hmm. Fear and shame are he's are often a good so nature soaks every evil with fear or shame. Huh. That's really good. He's saying some of the sexual practices too. He said yeah, there's a reason people are shame ashamed of it with you know the, uh, aberrant practices. Is, yeah. There's a good reason to be. Nature is telling you something. Oh, I see. I it's see. sort of nature's protection. Yeah. He talks about this with nature. He says the the pleasure of those who injure you lies in your pain. Therefore, they will suffer if you take away their pleasure by not feeling pain. Huh. And here's the third most famous quote. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? I've heard that. Yeah, this is about kind of philosophy and scripture, right? Yeah, he's saying is fundamentally, you know, we even though philosophy can be, we're going to see with origin, can be very helpful, that at the bottom of things, we're starting to improve fundamentally incompatible starting points. Yeah, yeah. But of course, he was very uh, well-versed in philosophy. Yes. No, he knew yeah. his stuff and he respected it, but he's saying we ne- must never forget. We're just coming from different that We're not another philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Fear is the foundation of safety. <laughs> you know, so yeah, like we say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's right. a point which is sort of, there's a healthy fear, which is the foundation of our safety. Sure, sure. Yeah, I know. I've heard versions of this, like, you know, a little fear. is Fools rush in where angels fear to drag. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truth engenders hatred of truth. As soon as it appears, it is the enemy. Mm-hmm. So you don't be surprised that the truth often brings on negative feelings. I see, I see. Well, great. That's So, so that's Tertullian. Anything else um, that you have for us uh, on this particular church father? No, I guess it's so interesting that someone's had such a me- tremendous interest, again, because of the later Montanist phase. Otherwise, he'd be a father of the church. Right, right, right. And he certainly has been read as much as, as, as most fathers. Uh-huh. So he's made a huge contribution. His earlier writings are certainly uh, are certainly worth reading, yeah. worth, the, worth the reading. Sure. And I think we'd focus on, focus on what's good, yeah. which is most of his writing. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. That's all the time. And oh, feel free. Okay. I'm sorry. Feel free to get married after your spouse dies. <laughs> Lest there be any doubt here. This, yeah. <laughs> Remarriage. Okay. After death. <laughs> Great. Just want to sign off on that. Great. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. It's all the time we have left for this episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks for more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.